Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to this convocation on the second Wednesday of February. My name is Suzanne East. I'm the core curriculum director and I also co-lead the Chapel Convo programming along with our campus pastor, Kathy Stoner. So here we are, back together in this space. It appears that we have the Omicron variant somewhat under control, at least here in our campus bubble. We made it through a big snowstorm and two days of e-learning, and hopefully you had a little bit of time for some childish joy in the snow. And we're at that point in the semester where we can count on one hand, not using our thumb, the amount of weeks until midterm break. And that's always a good space to be. So as we re-enter this space, the in-person chapel convo space, I invite you to put aside your studying and your homework and texting and earbuds, anything that takes your brain out of this moment, out of this shared space with this community, and out of the now. And just try to practice being present, as President Becky Stoltzfus said last semester to us, being present and focusing on just one thing at a time. Today we have a convocation that's become an annual tradition for us here at Goshen College. All first-year students take the class Identity, Culture, and Community, and you know that at the end of that class, we ask you all to tell a story. Some of those stories are funny, some are really vulnerable and heartbreaking, some are about those small life moments that have a really big impact. But each story gives us a little window into the lives and the minds of the people around us of those that we share this campus with. And at the end of class, we invite five participants to tell their story here in Convocation, and I'm always so impressed and amazed by the bravery of the first-year students who say yes to this. So thank you to you five. Today we'll hear first from Naomi lapp Clausen, a history major from here in Goshen. She'll be followed by Kyla Foster, a sport management major and basketball player from Canton, Ohio. Then we'll have Jackson Barajona Rosales, a music education major also from Goshen, followed by Emily Sterlecki, history ed major from South Bend, Indiana. And then wrapping up, we'll hear from Fatima Rana, a theater and music double major from Orlando, Florida. After the last story, please stay in your seats for just two quick announcements before dismissal. And with that, I would invite you to applaud our first storyteller up onto the stage. On a dark night in September 2017, I find myself in a fancy suburban-esque apartment complex on the outskirts of Nanchang, Sichuan Province, China. Shiny buildings contrasted with the mud piles of new construction tower over my family and I as we near the elevator. A clanky chain door introduces us to a small elderly lady and her dog, headed in the opposite direction that we are. 
As she hustles towards the pristine center courtyard, we punch in the highest floor possible of the elevator. A couple minutes later, we knock on a penthouse door and pray it is the right one, and are gratified when an old white man answers. It's immediate assurance that we've found the right place, because when you see another white person in Anchong, you notice, you talk, and you just maybe end up at the strangest dinner party you've ever experienced. During the four months that I lived in China, I got pretty used to being an outsider. My parents were Goshen College's China SST leaders, and in turn, I got to be one of the few foreigners in a town of 7.6 million. Kids my age would notice me from miles away and gather around my sister and I for autographs and photos. Nanchang is a big city by American standards, almost four times the size of Chicago. But compared to other areas of China, it was relatively small and rural. My family, an SST group, had come to the assumption that we were really the only foreigners around. So it was a shock when my dad came across a 60-year-old Martin in a city park. Martin was a tall, white-haired man with a natural confidence that conveyed that he was either crazy rich or just crazy. Turns out both were true, as Martin claimed to have been reaping the benefits of China for little over 10 years. He was married to a young Chinese woman, had a Chinese stepdaughter, and knew absolutely no Mandarin. Martin had coasted through his life, relying on locals to get him around, and soaking in the privilege and fame he got from being a foreigner in Anchong. However, life as a monolanguage white American man in China can be lonely, so we sought out people who looked and talked like him. Martin's dinner party might as well have been a white person in Anchong convention, it consisted of an old artist, a young buff AmeriCorps volunteer, a small crusty white dog, Martin's family, and mine. We were given a tour of his impressive apartment, noted a western toilet and a grand staircase, and a gorgeous view of a far-off cityscape. Later in the evening, we ate rich cheeses and meats. We were serenaded by Martin's piano prodigy stepdaughter and settled into somewhat unsure, tense conversation. About halfway through the night, Martin pulled up a chair and addressed me directly. He wound the story of his coming to China, his military career that led him to hundreds of countries, the sailing adventures that he'd been on. He hyped up his personal utopia built on a foundation of bigger-than-life experiences, how he planned to live and die in Nanchang. I was incredibly uncomfortable the entire time. I had the urge to give him exactly what he wanted, eager nods, smiles, and laughs, and yet, I was repulsed by practically every sentence he completed. To me, Martin looks like an incredibly lonely, vain man whose best hobby was exploitation. He looks like someone who'd always expected he would end up a celebrity, and his life in China was just the closest he'd ever gotten. I think the thing that I loathed the most, though, was that as I looked at the scene around me, I realized that I blended in right with him. I loved China. I loved its food, its architecture, its energy. I loved that each day I got to learn something new in a place so different and yet so similar to my home. And to be completely honest, I loved the attention that I received. I loved that for the first time in my life, I was undeniably special. While I missed pizza, dark chocolate, and my comfy shower, I think that I would have jumped at the chance to stay in China for longer. 
Here I was gearing up and hoping dearly for life just like Martin's, jam-packed with travel, adventure, and glory. So who was I to dislike him? As the night winded down, I began the ritual of soft whispers and parental sleeve tugs. My family and I thanked and thanked Martin for a night that felt like home. As we made our way down floor after floor in the elevator, we laughed and chattered about the night we'd experienced. My dad kept saying, I'm pretty sure Martin has no idea we're not rich. And we all beamed with pride, knowing that our humble family had infiltrated a dinner party of elites. Looking back, I still dislike Martin. He was arrogant and creepy and always in desperate search of validation. But I also remind myself that I too could be a Martin. Everyone can if we're not too careful. Since China, I've learned that it's possible to feel special without always being the center of attention. Adventures don't always have to happen thousands of miles away, and that Mandarin is still a very hard language to learn. I still have dreams of traveling the world, but with this night under my belt, I think I'll approach it differently. I don't want to sail through life as Martin did. I don't want to submerge myself in another culture without taking the time to learn anything about it. I want my stories to come from rich, heartfelt relationships rather than surface-level exposure. I want to be confident and bold from an internal core rather than external validation. I want to listen more than to talk. And let's be real, I want to continue to seek out completely bizarre dinner parties. I've never been an open book, but today I want to talk about someone who I look up to like no other, as well as life today for myself, being 276 miles away from the city I was born and raised in. Being the oldest out of four siblings can be stressful, and I can only imagine anyone who has more than that. For me, I have three younger si sisters and a younger brother. My three younger sisters' names are Monet, who is 18 years old, who I share the same birthday as, but different moms. Kalani, who is 15, who I share the same mom and dad as. Kaylee, who is 10, who I share a different mom as, as well. And last but not least, the only boy, Kenneth, who is 17 with the same mom and dad as Kalani and I. I was born on February 19th, 2003. Soon after turning one, my mother found out she was pregnant. Five months into her pregnancy, we found out she was having a boy that was supposed to be born one or two days before my birthday. Now you're probably thinking, where exactly is this story going? Why are you telling us about something we can figure out about you? Well, December 15, 2004 came around and my mother went into labor, having my brother, Kenneth Earl Foster. Two months earlier than expected, weighing three pounds and 10 ounces. Due to him being born so early and so small, he was stuck in a hospital. So we would go daily to visit, three to four times a day, even staying the night, some nights. One day, my mom was heading to the hospital, where she would learn some unexpected life-changing news, which was that my brother could have Down syndrome. If you don't know what Down syndrome is, it is a genetic disorder caused by the presence of all or part of a third copy chromosome, 21, causing physical growth delays, characteristic facial features. They began to do some tests right away on him. And they are indeed correct that my little brother has Down syndrome. 
I know for my mom and dad being 21, 23, finding out that news and watching him go through the things that he went through was rough. And as years went on, it was rough for myself, seeing someone I love, especially my baby brother, that's so innocent and hasn't even experienced life, counseling in the hospitals, having both a feeding tube and trait, multiple surgeries, scars, and many more battles where now I just can't and won't go to the hospitals unless I absolutely have to. Over the years, he then got his feeding tube and trach out, finally be able to eat food, where now all he does is eat, 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 and gain no weight at all. Watching his growth as he's gotten older has been tremendous, and since birth, me and his bond has been unbreakable and grow on a daily basis. Whether we're going to Sky Zone, his favorite place, sitting watching WWE, where he tries to do a John Cena move on me, <laughs> driving around, listening to music, or me spoil him, as my mom says, with food and gifts, you name it. Life for me for the last, over the last three months, honestly has been a journey. Constantly feeling down, emotional, which I've never been before, empty, and still faking until I make it. Writing this made me realize that I've always needed to work on myself, but never did because of me being occupied with taking care and helping other people. Kenneth being my best friend and the person who I think about any time I feel like giving up and can't get out of bed due to me being drained so mentally and physically, and knowing what he went through at such a young age and continuing to be the strongest person I know. Keeps me pushing through the toughest time that come while trying to be happy and heal. The message I'm giving you guys with this story is that we are all given tough battles, some tougher than others, but at the end of the day, it is up to us how we deal with it. My brother doesn't let an extra chromosome get in his way, so don't let the small things get the best of you. I'd like to think of Cross Country as a bad TV show, like The Flash, you know? <laughs> well, you start it off because you have nothing better to do, and at the beginning you think, oh yeah, this is actually kind of good. But then, each time you go back, you think, wait, why am I still doing this? In the fall 2017 high school cross country season, I was in the top 10 runners of our team. And I had a pretty consistent low 18, which right now, looking back, isn't as good as the college runners here right now, but, you know, it was pretty good for me. Now, if with that time, um, that was at the same level as some uh, senior runners who were competing for the seventh position on the team to run on the varsity squad. One highlight is that is that you'd be able to run at Harrison, um, this race at West Lafayette, where some of the top runners of Indiana would um, spend a night there, and then that morning, run um, a huge meet with um, almost teams across the state. And um, my, since my older brother was um, one of the best runners on the team, and me as a freshman, I wanted to prove that I could run at the same level as him, 
and be with all those upper runners over there. There's a team photo, there's a good amount of the team right there. And if you're wondering why there's a parental advisory sign on one of the runners, that's because I didn't want to get yelled at after this presentation. Before this race, I was already fighting for my spot to actually be a part of the Harrison run. The race before Harrison determined who would be running at that race, and our seventh runner was actually sick that day. And so I just needed to beat the eighth runner of the team, and lucky me, I did. So I was able to run at Harrison. The day before the race, we drove down to Purdue and practiced there on campus. Following that, we decided to get dinner, and for some reason, we wanted to get Chipotle, even though that's horrible for your stomach before a race. So we stuff ourselves a lot the night before the meet. Mike tells everyone to go to sleep early since, you know, everyone has to wake up at 6 for breakfast and get to the race. So instead, we go to Walmart, get very unhealthy snacks, and then stay up until 3 a.m. playing Jackbox games, laughing and laughing at stupid drawings of our friends. Like that one. <laughs> Eating Oreos and drinking chocolate milk. It was really a life-changing experience. In the morning, everything feels right and wrong at the same time, physically and mentally. We get to the race. Thousands of runners throughout the plane, some of them looking like nerdy middle schoolers and others looking like full-fledged adults, bearded and all. As I warm up, I get to the part of the morning where the, my shins feel bad and everything just starts to feel wrong. The usual anxiety of not being good enough and letting down the team starts to creep in. Uh, you're only here because your brother is a senior, you know, all that. I remember the ninth runner telling me that one time, and he probably didn't mean it, hopefully. My coach, Mike, was never really good at reassuring his runners, but my coach, the boys, was able to reach out to us and let us know that either way we ran today, he would be proud of us getting here. As we lined up, since I was the last runner of our varsity group, I was in the back of the pack. I look around and the butterflies come in, like now, and the only thing I can think as the officials raise the gun is, I hope I don't fall to the fall to the ground at the beginning like a dumbass. And that's the bang of the gun. As countless spikes pound on the dirt simultaneously, the group is tight, shoulder to shoulder for the first 400 meters. As we reapproach a left turn, a guy sticks his foot in my steps, which causes me to stumble and bump into him. This causes him to stumble and run straight into the foot-wide pole like a Tom and Jerry sketch. <laughs> the thought of stopping and checking if he's okay comes in and goes like the wind freezing my body. Really, from there, I was no longer as worried, worried as doing poorly as much I was doing so bad that he would catch up to me and destroy my ankles. <laughs> In cross country, there are very few times where you feel like nothing is important but running, advancing forward to the finish line. I don't know what was the main reason I hit the zone that day, and I don't really remember much from the rest of that race or even how I felt during the two steep uphills that were killing me during the warm-up. At the finish, I do a regular kick to catch the, first, the final runners, passing through them like I'm flying. No pain, no thoughts, head empty. Just the rhythm of my stomping feet and my rapid heartbeat. I got a personal record that day with the time of 18.23. Again, that is not a very good time now, but it was a good time for me. As I'm at the tent, I find out that all of us had also PR'd that day, except for my older brother, which I find very ironic. I don't re 
remember what, we place, what place we had gotten as a team, but I do remember something a lot more important. Going to Goodwill after that race and then getting a DVD copy of the 2002 film, Spider-Man. <laughs> really, this day didn't truly define me as a person for the race or proving myself as a runner or, or PRing, but because of the experience. I haven't laughed so hard where I actually thought I was going to need some medical help since that night. And the overall time I had there was simply great, something I strive to have as a constant. This was a life-changing experience because this day is a day that I look back and I remind myself of what's good. That though, I, like it was a bad TV show, like The Flash, I wouldn't trade that day of running with my team for anything else. There we go. Good morning. My name is Emily, and I am impulsive. This isn't a great trait usually, but sometimes it can be a really wonderful thing, and it can really change your life. So when I was in eighth grade, I joined my school's orchestra completely on accident. It was the first day, and I was not prepared for any of it, but that's a story for another day. I spent eighth grade trying to teach myself how to play the violin, which was not as easy as you'd think. Oh, hi, Jackson. There we go. <laughs> there we go. All right, so I'm teaching myself the violin, right? It's eighth grade. Not a great time. But ninth grade rolls around, and I have improved enough that my director comes up to me, and she very kindly and sweetly, as she is known to do, she forced me to audition for the South Bend Youth Symphony. So... The actual preparation for the audition wasn't the hard part. I was learning scales, I was learning an excerpt. That was easy. What was hard was I got in. So I immediately realized three things. The concert was in about three weeks. We were playing a movement from Beethoven's Fifth, which was a huge step up from the single sheets of like, row, row, row your boat. I panicked a little, I'll be honest. And the third thing was this was not any concert. This was their 50th anniversary gala concert. So I was panicked. I was lucky to hit the first beat of each measure. And after that concert, I sat down and realized I never wanted to feel that helpless at a concert ever again. So I sat down that summer and I practiced, like for a long time. And I come back to school, it's 10th grade now, and our director gives us our seating assignments. And I find out I went from about the middle of the section to first chair, first violin, which was a huge like whiplash from the worst concert of my life. It was a good moment, and I spent that year you know, teaching the rest of the violins in my section, which was fun until it wasn't. So junior year rolls around, and the symphony music has been getting harder. We went from two to three pages of relatively hard music to entire movements and symphonies, and I wasn't ready. So I, we had our first concert of junior year, and we played Scheherazade, which was long and intense and very technical. And I was burnt out. 
I had been teaching my whole section and I had been working with them and working on my own goals and I was tired. So I just sat down and I decided, if the next concert isn't perfect and amazing and changes my mind, then I was gonna quit. I wasn't gonna play senior year and I would be done. And we start prepping for our next concert and I have that sitting in the back of my mind the whole time. So he hands us 15 pieces of opera music and I'm already dreading it. Like it was not a good time. <laughs> But we had seven guest singers coming and two guest orchestras, and that was exciting. Not orchestras, choirs. And they were all coming in, but we couldn't meet with them until the week before the concert. So we spent months preparing, playing all these pieces, and it all came down to this one day right before the concert. There were two guest singers that I remember in particular. The first one, he walked up, he had this huge barrel chest and these big muscular arms. And we pull out Summertime from Porgy and Bess. Some of you may know where I'm going. He walks up and he rolls his chest and he has his shoulders back. And out comes this delicate little falsetto. It was gorgeous and beautiful. And after we finish, we're all looking around at each other. Like, who else is going to walk up there? What else are we going to hear today? The second singer really cemented that idea. He walked up with his hands in his pockets, which if you're a singer, you know, that's not how you get ready to sing. We pull out Nessun Dorma, super classic opera piece, gorgeous, beautiful, and we're playing these long muted notes and you know vibrato and all of it. And he starts singing and he fills this room. It was beautiful. And, you know, we play the piece, and we finish, and our director is holding us, and it's silent. And for a second, you could have heard a pin drop. And then he drops, and the whole thing breaks. There's these 40 choir kids behind him, and they're, like, glowing. I had never seen them look like that. And then all of us are looking at each other. My stand partner was on my arm, just like banging, like, did you see that? And I look around and I realize, how was I going to quit this? I had found myself in a home, in a community that I truly loved and I felt comfortable in. And I hope all of you guys can find something similar for yourselves. Thank you. Oh, that's the button. Oh, wow, okay. Hey. So, when I was in my senior year of high school, I was looking for a way out. I was living with my best friend, Bryce, who's the one with um, the long hair in that picture on the side there. Um, I was alone. Uh, I was living on what I had, and I was hanging with my best friend in the whole world. We would go to school, where we had all our AP classes together, go to rehearsals after school, and then we would come home to his siblings. We would usually make them dinner and get them ready for bed. We had big dreams. I wanted to get out of Orlando and study theater in some big city like New York. Bryce wanted to create social and political change in the world around him. And even though we faced many challenges, 
we still had massive college application lists. And the number one on that list was the incredible and prestigious University of Florida. Although it wasn't far from home, they had impeccable theater and polyscience programs that were renowned across the country. Bryce and I knew we had a chance of getting in. We had the grades, the extracurriculars, and of course, each other, but the deadline was rapidly approaching, November 1st. One fateful night in October, Bryce and I sat down at the table after making the kids' dinner, and we soon realized how early into the night it was, and that we finally had enough time to do the application. So, there we were, Bryce and I at his kitchen table, finally starting an application that meant so much to us. We always had something else more important to do. We always had homework or a kid to feed, but not tonight. So, there we were, clicking away into our future, telling our past to an admissions office in hopes that they could see our incredible potential. We still had time. But then, Bryce's phone rang. It was a friend of ours that I had gone to middle school with. He used to be regarded as extremely smart in the seventh grade. He had skipped two grades, so he was much younger than us. But now, he sold drugs, and as a result, I had distanced myself from him. Bryce walked away from the table to answer the phone while I continued my application. But when he got back, he told me that our friend needed someone to be with him while he sold over $100 worth of drugs to some people he had met at school. I told Bryce not to go. I told him he had no responsibility to help him. Bryce grabbed his skateboard and said that he did. He had to protect him. He promised to be back so we could finish the application, but I knew he wouldn't be. And so he left, and I was alone. It was time for me to finish the application. I felt like I should have gone with him. I was worried about what the deal would look like. Would they have guns? How old are these people? How many would there be? Am I being selfish? Should I have dropped everything in order to go help? I was startled when my phone rang, but in a split second, I knew exactly who it was. However, what I didn't know was what had happened while I was just sitting here. Our friend had walked with Bryce to the next street over from ours and waited on the street corner. It was dark, so they couldn't see the group of men approaching them. Before Bryce could move, they grabbed him. They grabbed our friend, too. They took his drugs, his wallet, his phone, and even his shoes. They threw him to the ground and curb stomped him while Bryce struggled to break free. Bryce was fearing for his life, though, so he watched his friend being destroyed on the ground. And when they were done, they just walked away. When I heard this, I immediately closed my laptop and ran outside with my car keys. I saw Bryce helping our limping friend back to our house. I insisted that we go to the hospital, but our friend said no. He had drugs in his system and didn't want his mom to know. I reluctantly agreed to take him home, and we decided to tell his mom that he had been jumped on the main road rather than next to my house. The car was silent, and at that moment, he reminded me of the friend I used to know, sensitive and scared. Bryce was squeezing my hand. We were all children in high school. The application was due November 1st. We didn't apply to the University of Florida. Nowadays, however, our friend is attending our local community college and is doing much, much better. Bryce is actually attending Santa Fe College, which um, directly connects to the University of Florida, so he actually did get to live out the dream we had wanted so much. 
And as for me, I'm going, college out of, going to college out of state and I'm studying theater, which is exactly what I wanted to do. But that moment taught me a few things I will never forget. You must be present in the moment you are currently in. You have to do things for others, even when you don't want to. You never know when you could leave your mark on someone, so don't worry about leaving your mark on the world just yet. Thank you. Thank you so much to each one of you for giving us access not only to a story from your lives, but also the way you think about it, the way you make sense of it. Could we all applaud our five storytellers just one more time? Just two quick announcements. First of all, just a reminder that last week's Black History Month convo, which was canceled because of snow, was rescheduled for this coming Friday at 10 a.m. And also next week's chapel is an interfaith chapel. And I think our student ministry leaders are still looking for a few folks who would be willing to bring a ritual, a song, a reading, something from their faith tradition to that chapel. So if you're interested, see Eli Reimer about that. Thank you so much for your attention. Have a good day.